Good afternoon. My name is Tim Lynch. I'm the director of Cato's project on criminal justice, and I'm going to be moderating uh, this panel on the Supreme Court's criminal cases from the last term. Uh, before we get started, I, there is one housekeeping note. Um, because of the severe storm warnings we've been receiving, uh, this is expected to hit the capital city a little later today. And the flash flood warnings that we've been hearing on the radio, I just wanted to remind you that your seat cushions can also, <laughs> can also be used as flotation devices. <laughs> please note the exits. <laughs> keeping in mind that the closest exit to you might be behind you. <laughs> Most important from the perspective of our panelists, please make sure all your electronic devices have been turned off and are stowed underneath the seat in front of you. <laughs> and we know uh, you can visit other think tanks, uh, so we appreciate your attendance today and we hope your <laughs> stay is in a safe and enjoyable one. I have a question. Do you think that either of the Koch brothers know that there's only one neuronal in the brain? <laughs> I have no idea. Well, I'm still that <laughs> Okay. On to the business at hand. Uh, there were many uh, interesting criminal cases that came before the Supreme Court last term. Unfortunately, we only have time this afternoon to cover three of them. Uh, for this panel, uh, my plan is to introduce each speaker in turn. And first up is my Cato colleague, Jim Harper. Jim is a director of information policy studies here. Uh, his research delves into areas such as privacy, telecommunications, intellectual property, and security. He's the author of Identity Crisis, How Identification is Overused and Misunderstood. And he recently co-edited a book for Cato called Terrorizing Ourselves, How U.S. Counterterrorism Policy is Failing and How to Fix It. Jim's article in the Cato Supreme Court Review is about the Jones case on the constitutionality of using GPS devices for vehicles uh, and cars. So please welcome Jim Harper. Between uh, Tim and I, I thought I was the funny one, but uh, obviously that's not going to be the case. So I'll dispense with the obligatory opening joke. Uh, the Jones case, I think the most important thing to understand is that the Jones case was not just a good case because it was a unanimous privacy win, uh, but really because it set the stage for reform of the, the Fourth Amendment doctrine that came after Katz, the reasonable expectation of privacy test, which I'll, I'll uh, briefly go into during my talk, uh, as, uh, as really uh, harmful for privacy and the liberty interests that we're all um, so keenly interested here at Cato, and I'm sure you are as visitors, as visitors with us. Uh, you're probably familiar with the case because most of you probably used to go to the Levels nightclub up on Montana Avenue Northeast here. To show of hands, I, I, I'd better actually go into the facts just briefly. Uh, Levels was a nightclub on Montana Avenue Northeast. I never went there myself before it closed down some years ago. But the owner of the nightclub, a man named Antoine Jones, uh, came under suspicion of narcotics trafficking and sales. Uh, law enforcement uh, got a warrant to put a GPS device on his vehicle. Uh, the warrant allowing them to, to place the GPS device on the vehicle within 10 days of its issuance in the District of, of Columbia. Well, as if to set up a, a perfect Supreme Court case, uh, the GPS device was attached to his vehicle on the 11th day in Maryland, 
outside of outside of the, the district where it was allowed to be to be attached and outside the time period for the warrant. Uh, the, the government argued not that it was a technical deviation from the warrant's terms, but that a warrant was not required to place a GPS device on a car, use it for 28 days, and collect 2,000 pages of information about the whereabouts of the car and inferentially Jones himself. Having collected that information, it was used to, to conduct further investigation uh, to, to acquire warrants, ultimately to charge and to convict Jones of the, of the conspiracy charges and the, and the underlying drug charges. He challenged the use of the GPS evidence. Um, and and the, the, res the result of that challenge in the, in the district court and in the, the Court of Appeals, rather in the Superior Court and the Court of Appeals, are a nice illustration of the weakness of Katz doctrine, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, the, the trial court found that, that Jones did not have a reasonable expectation of privacy in his public movements. Therefore, the Fourth Amendment was not implicated by the attachment of a GPS device to his vehicle. The DC Circuit found that he did have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the totality of his movements over that long period of time, 28 days. And again, this is something the Supreme Court emphasized, 2,000 pages of material about his whereabouts. This is roughly speaking uh, the mosaic theory where enough data points collected, public data points collected, uh, draw a, a clear enough picture about a person's <clears throat> life that it crosses a Fourth Amendment line. The government, of course, appealed the DC Circuit ruling to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court asked something that had come up in on-bank review at, at, at the appeals level. Uh, the Supreme Court asked specifically for briefing on the question of whether the attachment of the device to the vehicle violated the Fourth Amendment rights of Jones. Well, the holding was unanimous for Jones, uh, which is nice, but almost perfectly split as to rationale. Justice Scalia wrote the, the majority opinion uh, with, with five votes behind him. Uh, essentially using a property-based argument, a deviation from the tradition sense cats of thinking in terms of expectations. Uh, he said that gov government installation of a device and use of the device to monitor movements constitutes a search. Justice Alito wrote the concurring opinion, differing strongly with, with Scalia. Um, he derided that as an 18th century uh, tort law uh, approach to the Fourth Amendment, and though he didn't articulate it carefully, most likely would have relied on, uh, on the reasonable expectation of test and Jones's expectation uh, of privacy in his whereabouts for the total of those 28 days. Justice Sotomayor wrote the most interesting uh, opinion, a concurrence with the majority that reached out to both sides, saying that both sides are essentially right. Uh, she adopted the property-based argument, but made clear that it didn't deny the existence of the reasonable expectation test in cases where property uh, arguments weren't available. Agreement between majority and concurrence came on the point that privacy should be maintained as it existed at the time of the Fourth Amendment. The only problem is that nobody said exactly what the heck that means. In fact, one of the opinions mused about uh, what it would be like if a constable stowed away in a carriage for a period of time, tracking where the, where the carriage had gone, a miniaturized, uh, uh, miniaturized constable with a, a lot of writing materials. <laughs> well, privacy is an area where I can help because I'd, uh, I'm the, I'm, I study information policy and particularly privacy here at Cato and have for a few years now. Uh, I have a pretty good idea, I think, of what it is. Um, and the key, to, the key to understanding privacy is a definition that actually originated in 1967, coincidentally the year of the Katz case, in a book written by Alan Weston called Privacy and Freedom. 
And that was the idea that privacy is control of information about oneself. Uh, I've written at length about the, the control uh, dimension of privacy, if you will. People use it to describe lots of different things, but the control dimension is that, is that someone has uh, someone enjoys privacy when they have uh, the power to control information about themselves and when they've exercised that power consistent with their interests and, uh, interests and values. It's hard to do. It's particularly hard to do in the online world. But I'll talk about the offline world to illustrate what I mean. Uh, control of information literally means blocking the photons, the sound waves, the particulates, the surfaces that reveal information to other people, other people's eyeballs, ears, nostrils and tongues, etc., etc. We put on clothes, for example, to block from other people the appearance of our bodies. We go into houses to block from other people what we do inside there. It's not just physics, though. It's physics and law. So when we put on clothes, not only do we rely on the, on the physical protection for information provided by clothes, but the law backs that up. The law of battery means that when I put on clothes in the morning, somebody can't come up and take my clothes off of me without violating my rights. Likewise, the law of property means that when you re retreat into your home, close the blinds and doors, no one else can come in there and discover what has gone on within uh, but for having violated uh, your, your property rights. In my argument for what the court should do after the Jones case, I essentially don't argue for, for seeking privacy protection, but rather look for searches and seizures enlightened by understanding what privacy is. Maybe as a sort of bumpkin lawyer, I went to the Black's Law Dictionary definition of search, which is to seek out that which, which is otherwise concealed from view. Understanding what concealment is and how it works, you can understand what it is to look for things that are otherwise concealed from view. And the court has done this quite ably, actually, in the low-tech context. 1968, just a year after the Katz decision, giving us all this reasonable expectation nonsense. Uh, we, had, we had the case of Terry versus Ohio. Terry is the Terry stop case, where uh, Officer McFadden saw some guys who were, looked like they were casing a store, acting furtively. Uh, soon thereafter, a few blocks away, he grabbed Terry, turned him, patted him down, and found the gun that he suspected. The Terry court wrote very clearly and very plainly about the seizure of Terry, putting hands on him and turning him around, and the search that occurred when Officer McFadden used his fingers to discover the gun, quite different in feel from the body and papers underneath the clothes. Well, the court's been challenged to understand privacy, privacy protection and search in the higher tech cases, the communications technology cases. Communications technology, let's start with ex parte Jackson. Postal mail is the writing of something on paper and then folding paper so that the written material is on the inside of opaque paper. That's communications technology. And the court in Ex parte Jackson distinguished quite neatly between postal mail that's open for view, it has no constitutional protection, and postal mail that is sealed from view, it has constitutional protection as though that, that mail is still within the home. In Olmstead, the, the, the case that the court famously got wrong, Justice Taft mischaracterized the nature of what happened in the case. He had described quite accurately what happens in wiretapping, which is the attachment of a wire to, a, to, a, uh, uh, to collect the signal from a phone conversation and then replication of the phone conversation using that wire. But in the case, he said, there was no search. It was the use of the sense of hearing alone. Justice Butler, very interesting, obscured by Justice Brandeis's flourishes, um, said in, the, in his dissent to that case that the communications 
belong to the parties between whom they pass. Sort of the, the earliest that I've found, earliest iteration of the idea of digital effects, which is something that I actually think about quite commonly nowadays. The Katz decision, which we're, we're familiar with now from the reasonable expectation of privacy test, didn't turn on Justice Harlan's articulation. In fact, what the Katz court found was that having secreted himself in a phone booth, walls of glass that prevented sound waves from moving beyond it, Katz had created privacy for himself, privacy that uh, government officials could not overcome using the bugs that they, that they did secreted in the phone booth. Well, Harlan's concurrence did talk about reasonable expectations of privacy. It was attractive language. And some lawyers can't seem to say the word privacy without the prefix reasonable expectation of in front of it anymore. But the, I don't think I need to tell many of you that the, that the reasonable expectation of privacy <clears throat> test is, is not helpful to Fourth Amendment protection and, uh, and not intellectually sound. Uh, courts rarely, if ever, apply it faithfully, that is, finding a subjective and an objectively reasonable expectation of privacy. Uh, generally, it requires courts to guess at societal values, something they're poorly equipped to do. And it's tautological. Once courts have guessed at societal values, well, then that's what your, how your expectations have to be set by what a court said. If there's a new idea I have to offer about the reasonable expectation of privacy test, it's the comparison of reasonable expectations to plain view. Plain view doctrine is a simple and straightforward idea that if law enforcement can perceive something being from standing in a, in a lawfully in a given place, they're allowed to take cognizance of it and use the fact of what they've seen to render, render their, uh, their judgments about what may be going on. That's plain view, simple and straightforward. But plain concealment, its equal opposite, goes through this wonderful exploration of whether it's reasonable to expect that something is concealed. So I think to simplify the law and, and balance the law uh, back toward, toward the privacy protection we expect from the Fourth Amendment, plain view and plain concealment should be equal opposites, concealment not getting this reasonable expectation of privacy gloss. My prescription for the court, which I'm sure will be adopted in the next case, <laughs> is that the CATS, the CATS test should be dispensed with it. It is not useful uh, in protecting privacy. It's not useful for law enforcement, given the complexity. And it's, a, it's just a bear for courts to administer. As a simple administrative problem, uh, CATS, is, CATS is an, uh, an unwanted uh, doctrine, doctrine, that is, the, the Harlan concurrence in CATS. Rather, uh, I argue that the court should look for searches a search, as I said, is seeking out what is otherwise concealed from view. And I mean that very literally, factually. Was the thing available to be seen, given the physics at play and given the laws on the books around that thing? The strong case in that area is not Jones. It's Kilo. I like to call it the good Kilo, not the property rights case, but the one where an infrared uh, camera was used to examine the goings-on inside a home in Oregon. 2001, if I recall correctly, another case written by Justice Scalia. And he argued that when the government uses a device, not in general public use, to examine the details of the home, that is a search. In terms of information technology, uh, an infrared camera takes, takes emanations, that is radiation, um, from, from whatever is examined, and takes it from, from the invisible spectrum, that is things we cannot see from afar, and moves that radiation to the visible spectrum. If anything is a search, that is looking for something that's otherwise not perceivable, that's a search under my more technical definition than the one that Scalia offered. And secondly, look for seizures. Now a seizure, uh, 
the language in most cases, unfortunately, veers toward calling seizure a deprivation of a possessory interest. Knotts and Caro are the, are the beeper cases that preceded Jones. And they talked persistently about the possessory interest. And that's an area where information technology is going to have to change the way courts think about property. Because you can do a lot of things with technology not having to deprive someone of a possessory interest in a thing of theirs. Take, for example, a typical cell phone left on a high table, let's say at a nightclub up on Montana Avenue Northeast. Law enforcement may pick up a, 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 a phone left for a moment on this table, download a parental control application, and replace the phone, instructing the parental control application to co communicate regularly with an IP address controlled by law enforcement, informing law enforcement where the phone is, what's been said on the phone, uh, all, the, all the applications that have been, been used on the phone, et cetera, et cetera. The owner of the phone returns, picks it up. It's imperceptibly different than when they, when they left it there on the table. Yet, and no, and no possessory interest has been deprived, arguably. Yet the phone is now an instrument of law enforcement to use in surveillance, just as Jones's car was an instrument to be used by law enforcement in violation of his property rights. So that, uh, that uh, view of property law is, is uh, probably more philosophically sound, if you will, than, than the possessory interest. Courts have talked about the right to exclude as being the most important element of property. Uh, Tony Honore, the legal philosopher uh, who, who, who has articulated the idea of property as a bundle of sticks, points out that possession is only one of the sticks. The right to use, the right to profits, et cetera, et cetera, from, from property are other parts of, of the property right, other parts of that bundle of sticks. Courts should recognize that in, in the future seizure case where, where information technology is used to uh, invade a person's privacy. I made these arguments in a, in a more recent case, uh, Florida versus Jardines, a drug sniffing dog case where, where law enforcement brought a dog to the front door of a home. And the question is whether bringing a, a drug sniffing dog to the front door of a home is a search. That case is being argued next month in the Supreme Court. Uh, and I hope that I can be back here with you next year to, uh, to share the good results from that case, thanks to an amicus brief filed by the Cato Institute. Thanks very much for hearing me on this. Thank you, Jim. Our second expert speaker this afternoon is John Elwood, who is a partner at the firm Vincent and Elkins here in Washington, DC. John's specialty is appellate litigation and the review of administrative action. After graduating from the Yale Law School, he had several judicial clerkships, including one with Justice Anthony Kennedy. After his clerkships, he moved to the Justice Department's criminal division, where he tried cases uh, in the district court and argued in the courts of appeal. From 2002 to 2005, he served in the Solicitor General's office. And from 2005 to 2009, he served in the Office of Legal Counsel at the Justice Department. His article in the Cato Supreme Court Review is about the case FCC versus Fox Television Stations. So please welcome John Elwood. <clears throat> FCC versus Fox, I think, is important for three reasons. Uh, first, I think it's important in its own right in that uh, it wound up in having uh, orders against various broadcasters vacated, although I think in some ways that is the least important part of it because it was a pretty narrow decision. It's important, secondly, uh, because it's an emblem of the narrowness of the decisions 
uh, of the Roberts Court, or at least uh, emblematic of how many of the Roberts Court's uh, decisions are very narrow. And it's important, I think, because of the tea leaves it provides for the future of the First Amendment and the regulation of indecency. And uh, if it turns out that I'm right in my predictions that I'll get to later, uh, please remember me, and otherwise, uh, this never happened. <laughs> so uh, if you're wondering, what is this about uh, criminal cases here, there is actually a kind of a fig leaf for why this can be considered a criminal case, even though it uh, wasn't. And that is that there is a law in the books, 18 U.S.C. 1464, which prohibits uttering any obscene, indecent, or profane language by means of radio communication. I'm not aware of a lot of prosecutions of that. The last one that I know of, I'm not swearing it's the last, uh, or the most recent one was 1972, but there are not a lot of them in any event. Um, but the way that is enforced is uh, enforced by uh, an administrative agency, by the FCC. Now, the Communications Act of 1937 establishes a, quote, system of limited term broadcast licenses subject to various conditions designed to maintain the control of the United States over all the channels of radio transmission, unquote. And since 1927, uh, the Federal Radio Commission and then the Federal Communications Commission has uh, essentially enforced the anti-obscenity and anti-indecency restrictions through regulation, uh, through licensing and through penalties. Now, we managed to make it all the way until October 1973 before they had to actually use the thing, though. And then Pacifica Foundation, uh, which owned some nonprofit stations, broadcast George Carlin's Seven Dirty Words monologue uh, one Tuesday in October at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And if you've ever heard that thing, I've never particularly liked it. Even when I was young and enjoyed pure all humor, I never particularly liked it. But uh, it, is, it lives up to its billing. And, and the, uh, it was sanctioned by the FCC, and the Supreme Court upheld it, that sanction, in 1978, in opinion by Justice Stevens. I think one of the many opinions by Justice Stevens that he probably uh, you know, wished he could go and take back at some later point in time. But he upheld it uh, on a rationale that has come under a lot of fire recently. He said that broadcast was a medium that was uh, uh, received the most limited First Amendment protection of all forms of communication. And he noted two reasons for that. First, because broadcast was uniquely pervasive in the lives of all Americans. It was an intruder in our homes. Uh, it was there, you turn it on, and suddenly you can be confronted with these things. And secondly, it was uniquely accessible to children, even those too young to read. Uh, whereas the, you know, the dirty jacket and Cohen uh, might not have meant anything to a kindergartner, uh, they're going to, if you leave on, um, you know, uh, indecent broadcasts, your children are going to learn some unwanted vocabulary fairly quickly. And so it was upheld under that uniquely uh, pervasive and uniquely accessible rationale. Uh, in the years that followed, uh, there really wasn't a lot of innovation in the FCC's regulation of indecency. Um, because uh, the Carlin monologue was just about re repetition of uh, vulgar words, uh, there was a lot of emphasis on repetition. And in the pronouncements by the FCC uh, between the 70s and the early 2000s, uh, really did emphasize repetition as a factor that the FCC would consider in determining whether something was indecent. <clears throat> uh, then came a series of events that would launch a thousand F words and S words appearing in the United States reports. 
Um, and uh, it, it happened at all, we can blame it all on award shows. Now in the past, <laughs> uh, they were merely stupid, but uh, in the early 2000s, they became kind of uh, vulgar in addition. Uh, there was a barrage, first, Cher kicked it off with the F word. Uh, Nicole Richie, not to be outdone, uh, followed up with uh, using the F word, in, or the, actually the S word into the F word, and sort of uh, a two sentence double gainer, uh, degree of difficulty 9.5. <laughs> um, then came uh, NYPD Blue, which went in a different direction and broadcast seven seconds of bare, uh, uh, well, nude women's buttocks, or I guess one woman's buttocks, uh, in NYPD Blue, and uh, a fairly fleeting glimpse of the side of her breast. And uh, the triggering event was in, on the Golden Globes. The, the previous two award shows were the Billboard Awards for 2002 and 2003. Uh, and then Bono followed that up in 2003 on the Golden Globes, uh, where he used the F word, and that was the final straw. Uh, the FCC revisited its policy, and it uh, took a different position about repetition. It said that the fact that specific words or phrases are not sustained or repeated does not mandate a finding that the material is otherwise uh, that is otherwise patently offensive to the broadcast is not indecent. And uh, they justified that on the fact that he used the F word and the F word is a very vulgar word. Uh, the FCC then went back and penalized uh, the other three instances, uh, Cher, Nicole, Ritchie, and NYPD Blue on the basis of the Golden Globes order. Uh, it required a little bit more heavy lifting uh, in the case of uh, NYPD Blue since that involved nudity, but uh, they basically said, uh, based on their prior precedents that it, it barred you know, references and portrayals of sexual and excretory organs, and they said this was close enough. Uh, Second Circuit uh, on appeal reversed it uh, on Administrative Procedure Act grounds, saying that basically and they interpreted the State Farm principle to mean that when you basically change the meaning uh, of a law through regulation as opposed to just giving it a gloss, that you have to justify it more. You have to give a better rationale and explain why you're changing. And um, the Supreme Court reversed that in 2009, an opinion by Justice Scalia. It went back to the Second Circuit, uh, which then struck it down on vagueness grounds, although it was a pretty broad vagueness ruling. Uh, they criticized how the FCC had been inconsistent in their use of words, which I won't repeat their analysis because it would make me blush. But there's a lot of uh, splitting hairs uh, that looks kind of ridiculous when you uh, see it in print. And that they said that the in, you know, there basically wasn't a discernible standard. Uh, and under the principle, uh, as Justice Kagan later quipped, it seemed like the only uh, you know, rule of thumb was that uh, Steven Spielberg's uh, work wasn't indecent, but other people's work was. Um, so that came up to the, and then a later panel, that actually involved the, um, the swearing and a later panel uh, invalidated the NYPD blue sanction on the basis of its prior ruling in the Fox case. <clears throat> so it came up to the court, and the court uh, heard argument in January, reversed on June 21st, uh, the anti-penultimate hand-down day, that is, they had two hand-down days after that. So it was up there a long time, and I'll talk about that more later. Um, and they struck down the application, they said that the use of the rule to these three rules was vague as applied and unconstitutional. And they emphasized the absence of notice. Uh, that previously they talked a lot about um, 
uh, repetition, and there was no repetition here, plainly. And they, that there was nothing to indicate that the kind of nudity that was at issue in NYPD Blue uh, was going to be leading to sanctions. Now, I think the first thing that's really noteworthy about this opinion is the, no, is the narrowness of the ruling. All sorts of people, including uh, the Cato Institute in a brief that uh, I wrote for them, uh, argued that the Pacifica standard ought to be overruled, that it had been overtaken by events and was no longer valid. Uh, there were obviously you know, much broader First Amendment rulings, or much, much broader First Amendment holdings they could have handed down, and they didn't. It was vagueness, pure and simple. And, um, and instead, it really was a very narrow decision that broke no new ground. And in addition to sidestepping the First Amendment issues, uh, it was even narrow as a vagueness ruling in that it only addressed uh, the first of the uh, really two elements of due process, uh, um, that is notice, as opposed to clarity. And the fact that they addressed only notice as opposed to clarity means that it knocks out these three orders. But uh, you know, as a matter of, of law, uh, the FCC's standard is still in place now and could apply to any broadcast going forward. Um, I think that the, uh, the opinion is also uh, noteworthy in how self-consciously narrowly it is written. Um, I, I, Justice Kennedy wrote it in such a way to emphasize that on the facts of this case, it was really a laydown. And he, he wrote the recitation of the facts in a way to really make it seem like um, th this was a very, very narrow holding. I think it's noteworthy to compare uh, how Fox won the Scalia opinion from 2009 uh, discussed the procedural history and the evolution of the FCC's enforcement policies compared to how the Kennedy opinion did it. Because the Kennedy opinion says that it gave no notice to Fox or ABC and they changed course abruptly. And then if you look at the Scalia opinion, it says, um, it was cautious but gradually expanding approach. Uh, and they described the 2004 ruling, the Golden Globes ruling, as just one step further. And I think that that is it itself kind of telling that they're trying to make it very narrow. Because if you think about the alternative, uh, I think they were trying to show that this was an extraordinary event because uh, it limits the fallout from this type of case. Uh, there aren't that many cases where you're going to have such a clear cut uh, example of the agency, agency changing course and holding people liable for conduct that would not have been covered earlier. And if they had, you know, if the court had portrayed it more along the lines of Justice Scalia's uh, 2009 opinion, I think that it would have potentially opened up a lot more administrative orders to uh, due process challenges and vagueness challenges. Uh, it's kind of interesting, though, that each of the justices joined the other person's opinion. So it's not that they had, uh, you know, that they disagreed with one another's approach. There was really only one non-narrow thing about it that I have noticed, and that is that Justice Kennedy went out of his way in his opinion to emphasize that really there was nothing about this case that made it turn on the First Amendment. That, uh, you know, this could have been, you know, regulation of, you know, a garbage cans or something that didn't have any First Amendment implications. It was just because it was such a turnabout and the agency's enforcement policy uh, that made it a problem, not because it had anything to do with the First Amendment. Um, now, going forward, uh, as I say, uh, basically everything that was undecided before the opinion is more or less still undecided. And it remains to be seen how these things are going to be turning out. Um, as I said earlier, 
uh, it's significant to me that the case was pending so long because essentially this was a unanimous opinion. Justice Ginsburg concurred only in the judgment, but she filed literally a two-sentence concurrence. And you don't normally expect it to take uh, you know, from January to June to issue an 18-page unanimous opinion. Uh, so it seems to me that uh, there, there's a very decent life likelihood that uh, this, this resolution wasn't the uh, Supreme Court's first try at that. And uh, it's, you know, you can look at the oral argument transcripts, you can look at what was argued and try to see what some of the alternative resolutions were uh, and what uh, might have come of them. Um, now, let me see here. Uh, one thing that struck me as very significant is that even though the government did try to defend Pacifica on its own terms, that is, defending this pervasive uh, and accessible rationale that Pacifica adopted, uh, that most of the action was elsewhere. And the thing that stri struck me most when I read the transcript uh, was that uh, Solicitor General Verrilli, who argued the case for the government, uh, the first words out of his mouth had nothing to do with the Pacifica rationale and indeed had nothing to do with any argument that I could find in any briefs they filed. The argument instead he made was something that I'm sure came up during the moot courts in the SG's office where from personal experience I can tell you, uh, uh, you know, sort of the rationale you're going to present to a court changes a fair amount in the course of the moot courts. Um, and instead what he argued was that these licensees are getting something tremendously valuable. And they're getting that on the condition of following the terms of the license. And so uh, they basically agreed to it. Um, they agreed to uh, be subject to this indecency regulation. And this is something that the court explored a little bit uh, during the oral argument. Um, but uh, I think that there's the fact that the court, or rather the SG went straight to that, is an indication that they may not seek to defend Pacifica or defend the indecency regulation on the Pacifica rationale. And uh, if you take a look at the article which we submitted and which is basically a, an update and expansion of the brief we filed for Cato, there's good reasons for that. The world is a much different place as the Second Circuit noted, as Justice Thomas has noted, as Justice Ginsburg has noted, and various separate opinions since Pacifica was decided in 1978. Um, and <clears throat> Because of that, I think that uh, there's a very good chance that the government will go to some other rationale. I don't know how that will hold up because there's many cases that uh, I think put conditions on that. Uh, there's uh, um, unconstitutional conditions cases like the League of Women Voters case that Justice Alito argued as an assistant to the Solicitor General that uh, show that that won't be uh, a really easy argument to win, but it is a possibility. Um, and then you have uh, some of the statements by the justices that suggested that they would be looking to a different rationale to uphold the indecency regulation. And in particular, uh, statements by Justices Kennedy, who's normally a, a, the best thing next to a First Amendment absolutist, uh, the chief and Justice Scalia, who argued for what I call sort of an island of decency rationale, that uh, what we really need here is to preserve a space that we know that children can go to and not be you know, confronted with naked people and swearing pseudo-celebrities. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how this turns out uh, because this, the fact that the court didn't go along one of those rationales, even though it looks to me like they had some other rationale uh, that they trotted out at first, um, suggests to me that there were not five votes for that. It would otherwise look like it would be messy. Um, and it could just be that the government didn't really develop these alternative rationales in its argument, and they decided to wait for when they did. Uh, but it'll be very interesting to see how these things uh, 
you know, pan out looking forward. Anyway, thank you very much. Thank you, John. Uh, our third speaker is Professor Peter Spiro, who holds the Charles Weiner Chair in International Law at Temple University. In addition to international law, Peter specializes in the constitutional aspects of US foreign relations and immigration law. He's the author of Beyond Citizenship, American Identity After Globalization, published by Oxford University Press. And he has a new book coming out uh, from the New York University Press called Here and There, Dual Citizenship in America and the World. I should also mention that Peter clerked for Justice David Souter uh, before he moved into the Legal Academy. He is going to be offering his thoughts on the Arizona immigration case. So would you please welcome Professor Peter Spiro. Thanks, Tim. Um, when Tim proposed the uh, order for this sort of grab bag panel, I should have remembered that it's always hard to follow sex <laughs> and drugs. <laughs> but, uh, but we'll try um, here. And it's an, it's, an, it's an important case that, um, that I'm going to be talking about here, the Arizona versus United States case, which is really the most important decision from the Supreme Court on the intersection of federalism and immigration in more than 70 years. And I'm gonna make um, three, three sets of observations. First, uh, look at the question of who won and who lost, which is something that's been debated uh, a little in the wake of the decision this past summer. Uh, secondly, I'm gonna take a somewhat critical perspective on Justice Kennedy's majority opinion in the uh, decision. And then thirdly, I'm going to look at the, uh, what I think the impact of the decision is going to be uh, on, the, on the ground going forward, and what room is there for immigration uh, federalism uh, going forward. So first, on the question of, of who won and who lost. This was a nominally split decision. Um, but I, I think it's pretty clear that this was a loss for the supporters of uh, Arizona's SP. 1070. So uh, at issue in the case were four provisions of SB 1070. Uh, there was section three, which made it a crime under state law to fail to carry alien, federal alien registration documents. Section 5C, which would have made it a crime for aliens, for unauthorized aliens to seek uh, employment. Section six, which would have given state law enforcement authorities the power to make warrantless arrests in the context of immigration violations. And then section 2B, which is the so-called papers, please provision, which requires state law enforcement in the course of lawful stops um, uh, where there is reasonable suspicion uh, that an individual is in the United States uh, unlawfully to make a determination of immigration status. So those were the four provisions that were uh, at issue in the case, and the Supreme Court struck down three of them. So just on the numbers, you've got uh, three out of the four provisions that were uh, found unconstitutional. And it's really more like three and a half out of four that the, um, that the court uh, had a problem with. So if, you're, if you were scoring this, 
I think that would be uh, that that would be the score. To the extent that Section 2B was upheld, the papers please provision was upheld. Justice Kennedy did so on a narrow basis and explicitly inviting further challenge on an as-applied basis. So uh, he made clear that uh, another round of litigation, um, he gave the green light to another round of litigation, which is, uh, which is already starting in the, in the courts below. And then more importantly, although Section 2B got the lion's share of media attention surrounding the case, I think because it had this very evocative label, papers please, or check, uh, check the papers provision, it's actually the provision <laughs> of these four that's of least consequence in terms of its uh, putative impact. So section 2B allows state law enforcement to make or requires state law enforcement to make this determination of immigration status, but that's all. So they can make a phone call to federal immigration authorities, but there's nothing concrete that flows from the determination as made by uh, state authorities. And in Justice Kennedy's opinion, he was quite clearly sensitive to the possibility that the, the immigration status determination would result in a prolonged determination sorry, prolonged detention, and he put down a very clear marker that, that, uh, that any such prolonged detention under Section 2B should um, uh, implicate very close Fourth Amendment scrutiny. So Section 2B doesn't actually have that much impact in terms of controlling undocumented immigration on the ground, whereas Section 3 would have had, I think, a very dramatic immigration control possibility. Section three, this failure to carry federal alien registration documents. Now you can see the trouble that the media had with that provision. It doesn't make for a very um, snappy headline, um, but the, uh, the bottom line effect of section three would have been to criminalize undocumented status under state law in Arizona. Undocumented aliens are not eligible for federal alien registration documents. So by definition, anyone, any alien uh, here out of status would have been unable to comply with that provision and as a result would have faced a misdemeanor uh, criminal prosecution under Arizona state law. That would have had some teeth on the ground. Likewise, uh, Section 5C, which would have made it a crime under state law for an alien to seek unauthorized employment. Well, obviously, uh, a large proportion of undocumented uh, aliens uh, are engaged in unauthorized employment, um, and they would have been subject to criminal prosecution under state law. So those two provisions, if they'd been allowed to go into effect, I think would have had a much more uh, significant bite uh, on the ground. But, but that got lost in the debate, and uh, the fact that the papers please provision did uh, garnered the um, uh, lion's share of the media attention, led to this question about, well, was this a victory for proponents of SB 1070? And I think the answer to that is pretty clearly no. And if you're looking for proof, just read Justice Scalia's dissent in the case, which um, is quite um, 
intense, and I'm, I'm no longer a watcher of the court, so I don't sit down with the US reports at the end of the year, but uh, I suspect that um, this may have been the Scalia opinion of the year. Uh, and and well, well worth reading is always provocative. Uh, Justice Scalia, I don't know uh, if this is widely known, but when it comes to dissents and concurrences, he writes them from scratch, and they, and they read as such. They don't read like clerk-generated um, uh, uh, materials. And uh, as a result, they make for much better reading. And, um, and, uh, and his dissent in the SB 1070 uh, case, which you could, you could give the headline, taking state sovereignty very seriously. So Scalia has no problem with uh, the uh, prospect of uh, state immigration policies and considers this, in fact, to be an inherent matter of sovereignty and even, even cited international law in the, in the course of making um, this argument. International law, of course, of a very ancient vintage, but international law nonetheless. Um, so I think a pretty clear loss by way of the bottom line in this case. Uh, and that loss is, I think, com compounded by the reasoning of Justice Kennedy's opinion. So I want to spend a couple minutes on, uh, on his reasoning. Kennedy played very heavily on a foreign relations theme in the opinion for the court here. That is, he situated immigration as a matter inherently implicating the nation's foreign relations. Students of federalism jurisprudence relating to foreign relations will know that this is kind of an antimatter universe, that when it comes to uh, foreign relations, to paraphrase uh, the decision in the United States versus Belmont, the state of New York does not exist. Our ordinary presumptions about state powers, at least as a historical matter, have been put on their head so that uh, the states are assumed to have uh, no power. It's an exceptional regime. And Kennedy very clearly situated immigration uh, in this foreign relations framework in the reasoning of his opinion. And that's very important in terms of how we receive this opinion. It's that the court clearly did not see this as part of its federalism agenda. So in that way, those who are interested in advancing the federalism agenda can take some solace here, is that this is just in this sort of parallel world where all bets are off. And so, there's, again, those who are interested in advancing the federalism agenda shouldn't worry too much about this uh, evidencing a retreat from that agenda. In fact, uh, the court decided another case on much narrower statutory preemption terms uh, in the last term, the Whiting case, which also involved an Arizona law uh, in which the court upheld uh, uh, an employer sanctions regi regime under a very ordinary statutory preemption analysis consistent with the court's um, uh, finding more room for uh, state uh, law in uh, recent decades. But not so with the SB 1070 case, which uh, set a very low threshold for preemption on what's called a field preemption basis, which basically assumes that state law, even where it's consistent with a federal regime, um, will uh, fall in the face of that uh, federal regime. Uh, this is another way that this has been articulated both here and in the foreign relations um, law cases is 
the need for the nation to speak with one voice in the context of foreign relations. And Justice Kennedy dutifully uh, recited that mantra as part of his opinion uh, in the Arizona uh, case. So the best I can say about the opinion, looking at it with critical, some critical eyes, is that it's a conventional one. I mean, there is something to work with um, going back to uh, the late 19th century in terms of situating federalism, sorry, situating immigration in a foreign relations context. I guess this once again demonstrates that um, law professors are not the target audience for Supreme Court opinions. I guess that's something we can be grateful for, except if one's a law professor. Um, so count me as unpersuaded with this rationale. On the one hand, immigration does always inherent, inherently relate to foreign relations to the, the extent that you're talking about non-citizens. You're talking about citizens of other countries. And so foreign relations is always uh, in the background in some way. But the Kennedy opinion fails to explore the rationale behind the one voice dictum, which is all about externalities of state action. So it makes sense to bar the states from activities that relate to foreign relations, including immigration, if the result is going to be serious consequences for the rest of us. Um, so if Arizona takes an action on its own that ends up harming uh, those of us who live in Pennsylvania or, or other states, there's a problem with that. And in the foreign relations context, that problem is compounded to the extent that the stakes are often magnified. That's not really the world we live in anymore. At least uh, I think one can make the argument that that's not the world we live in anymore. So SB 1070 very much caused a problem uh, for Mexico, for instance. Mexico was very agitated about it, not surprisingly, since many of its nationals' interests were uh, compromised by its enactment by um, Arizona. But Mexico now understands that when Arizona enacts a statute such as SB 1070, it's Arizona that's acting, not the United States. And Mexico can calibrate its response appropriately so as not to compromise the interests of those of us who live in states other than Arizona. And so I think that's, that there, there once was a very strong functional basis for what's called the dormant foreign affairs power, which did extend to immigration in earlier Supreme Court cases. But I think that rationale has been um, significantly diluted in the context of um, globalization. So finally, on the uh, impact of the case, the, I think the Kennedy decision was a conventional one, but is also a consequential one. So this is going to have uh, some importance on the ground. And in a lot of ways, it's the worst of both worlds for proponents of the SB 1070 case. If, um, if SB 1070 had been struck down, if all four provisions had been struck down, that would have given restrictionist constituencies a rallying call in Washington. So I think it would have empowered restrictionists uh, in their efforts to secure uh, tougher federal uh, legislation in the context of immigration. But the fact that the court did uphold this papers please provision, the one that had been getting all the attention 
the restrictions are basically deprived of that rallying call on uh, 1st Street at the same time that they don't really have much to peddle in other state capitals in the wake of this decision. So if you, those of you who have been following this at all know that there's uh, Chris Kobach and um, uh, Michael Hefman who in a very entrepreneurial way have been going around to state legislatures and selling restrictionist uh, immigration legislation in a way that I, I think they deserve some credit for thinking creatively and for getting laws passed in, um, in a half dozen states. And so there was some success to their efforts leading up to the Supreme Court's consideration of SB 1070. I think in the wake of SB 1070, these enforcement-oriented state laws are gonna look very unattractive to state legislatures that have not acted to date. All they get is papers, please, so the other mechanisms have been taken off the table. And they get the papers, please, with the promise of future litigation, of tarnished state brand, of lost tourism and convention dollars. So there are a lot of sort of, there's more, there's a lot of stuff on the negative side of the balance at the same time that uh, the Supreme Court's action here sort of guts uh, the package in a significant way. So I think um, that unilateral initiatives that are enforcement oriented are not gonna be tolerated going forward. I think that's the bottom line of this decision. That's the cue that the Supreme Court is giving to the lower courts here. I think this is mm. the last time that the Supreme Court will um, uh, engage the issue for, for, for some time. Uh, but states still have an important role when it comes to the regulation of immigration. And I think what we're gonna see um, evolving here is a scheme of negotiated federalism. And there are two contexts in which this is already playing out. One is something along the lines of the Utah Compact model. So Utah enacted uh, a series of measures which had an enforcement side, but which also put on the table the possibility of a state-initiated guest worker program. So some balance in the mix in a way that not implausibly could garner federal approval. So the federal approval is now necessary for such uh, initiatives, but I think given the pressure that's coming from below, that um, that approval is possible. And then finally, we're already seeing this play out in the context of the Obama administration's executive action in effect adopting a dream at type um, version of prosecutorial discretion. The states have room to act within, uh, within that um, action so that for instance, states can decide whether these, whether individuals who are eligible for this prosecutorial discretion get driver's licenses or whether they get in-state tuition. And so even in the face of a pretty heavy hand from the Supreme Court in the Arizona decision, I think we'll still see um, an important role for uh, states in the context of immigration. Thanks very much. Okay, we have time to take your questions. Uh, as before, please wait uh, for me to call on you and wait for the microphone to arrive so that everybody can hear your question and please identify yourself in any affiliation that you may have. And please keep your questions brief. I 
I do not permit two-part questions. <laughs> yes, sir. Hi, uh, Pat Span, just representing myself. Um, Mr. Harper, the, um, you hear all the talk about the um, use of drones and um, UAVs, and uh, I, I assume driving around, I hate to use that expression you don't like about expe expectation of privacy, but the, it seems like you're driving around the highways, driving around the roads. You know, you can surveil someone without a warrant, I would believe. So what, is, what do you see as the future of uh, you know, some little uh, aerial bug just following someone around and seeing what they do? Is it, you think that's going to be legal? It's almost, it's almost like you're a plant, because that's one of, the toughest, uh, one of the toughest questions for me to answer. I, uh, I was in a sort of a contest of a sort with the, at, at, at a recent Privacy Law Scholars Conference, and I presented this thesis, and the question was, so how do you fix that problem of the little drone that follows people around? I said, I'm not sure I know how to fix it. I came in last. Um, so that presents, that presents a difficult question, because it's, it's open whether it or not under my thinking, it would be a search to have a small device follow someone around in public, uh, a tiny drone that can just fly along behind a car or fly along behind a person. Um, first of all, the, the, the facts or the information about the person's movements in public are not barred by physics, and they're not barred from collection by law. Uh, but in an important sense, Using this outre device to figure out where a person has been 24 hours a day or 16 hours a day for some extended period uh, is use of a technology that's not in general public use. It's not, it's not, it's not breaking through barriers of physics or law, but it's based breaking through barriers of time or economics, which are a little bit more flexible, permeable bar barriers than the one I talk about as protecting privacy. Um, Nowhere do I say that judges won't have to do judging at some point in the future. I'll certainly make an, an argument in a case that if a case were to come up around that kind of factual situation, that it is a search to use uh, exotic technology in order to learn someone's whereabouts, uh, for example. There are ordinary technologies that people use that, that uh, you could say, I think, I think you'd best say, aren't search technologies. Those are spectacles that allow one's eyes to focus properly on something. Flashlights, medium to low power binoculars. You might use all these things and it doesn't even fall into the area of search. But when you're using, as, as Scalia talked about in that Kilo decision, when you're using technology that's not in general public use to observe things not otherwise available to you, I'd argue that's a search. It's just not as clear a line as the one I'm able to draw with the doctrine I tried to lay out for you in my discussion. Great question. Thank you. Good afternoon, uh, Kathleen Hunker, the Cato Institute. I just wanted to follow up on that question. When you talk about the technologies in general use, uh, one of the uh, developments with technology is that they slowly but surely get into public use. So devices that once were exotic suddenly become ordinary. So what do you do when you have the case of infrared technology, which starts to become widely available, which is sort of a intrusion on what you physically are trying to prevent the world to see. 
How do you deal when it becomes general public use? Well, um, you said suddenly, but I don't think anything becomes sudden comes suddenly into general public use. Uh, there will be times as as technology advances, and, and the frankly the 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 result, but not the rationale of the kilo decision, may go away at some point in the future, where everybody's cell phone has an infrared device in it. Um, society will understand that if you want to obscure the hours of the the your sauna usage in your home. You need to put the sauna on the interior of the home rather than against an exterior wall. Uh, all these kinds of things. I don't know. I don't know whether whether uh, uh, infrared cameras will come into such use that ordinary people, knowing they want to obscure information, will have to take these practices. But we've we've dealt with with oncoming technologies in the past. Indeed, the the right to privacy, the Harvard Law Review article that uh, uh, Warren and Brandeis wrote in 1890, was inspired by the advent of photography, springing into use on them. Now we're all well aware that when we walk down a public street, it's, I, I have to tell you this and you have to think about it. When we walk down a public street, we're subject to being photographed. And we're all aware of that and it's part of the context of living. So it wouldn't be argue, an arguable search, or, or could be arguable, but it wouldn't be a search or some kind of exotic technology to capture the image of somebody on a street. Um, that's, so, so I think we recognize through these examples, you recognize the distinction between the exotic technology the, the, the drone, the miniature drone that we're talking about as a potential, and things like eyeglasses, flashlights, cameras, and so on and so forth. There will be, be tough calls as, as a technology, as an information technology makes its way into broad use. There might be some arguable calls. But uh, I think it's a better way of determining when there has or has not been a search than for courts to say, a person has a reasonable expectation of privacy under these circumstances, and they don't under those. Because the question posed by my way of thinking about it is essentially a factual one. You come to, come to a court and say 50% of people have this thing, or 80% have this thing, or 10% have this thing. <coughs> the argument you're making otherwise is, here's how we all feel. And I think much, your, your courts are in much more solid ground uh, looking at factual, uh, factual circumstances, factual technological circumstances, than they are trying to adjudge for the nation what the nation's feelings should be about privacy. Yes, sir, in the back. James Young, National Right to Work uh, Legal Defense Foundation, uh, and I'm completely out of my element on this subject, so I'll, I'll throw something out. Uh, Professor Harper, I, I appreciate your effort to try to find a distinction, but aren't you really substituting how we feel about privacy with how we feel about technology? I mean, I don't, I don't see how this principle, is, this distinction is any more principled than the reasonable expectation of privacy um, standard in CADS. Well, um, tell me what I had for breakfast this morning. You literally don't know it. Uh, because I haven't told anyone about it, they haven't told you, you aren't able to perceive it. It's private information. And that's as a factual matter. You don't have that information. Uh, if you were, if you were some, somehow able to determine it and, and had determined it and brought it into a court, uh, would a court, what, what judgment would a court make about whether I had a reasonable expectation of privacy in my breakfast? What I'd eaten in my breakfast. Uh, regularly we see courts especially in drug cases, and that's how most Fourth Amendment cases get to them, uh, doing, doing essentially backward reasoning. And um, I'm going to forget the name of the case where, where, where the court adopted uh, the, the, the cats-based 
uh, corollary that a person doesn't have reasonable ex a reasonable expectation of privacy in illegal behavior. So if you if law enforcement has devised a way of discovering illegal behavior, there is no reasonable expectation of privacy in that. It's it's anything goes. So I think you're much better off uh, having courts deal with the factual question of whether the information was available. Was it physically perceptible to a government agent standing in a particular place at a particular time trying to trying to see the, or perceive in other ways this information? Was it legal for the government agent to perceive this information? Uh, then to ask what society thinks in this given factual context about what happen, happens in this information. So I, I certainly appreciate that, not, that uh, my thinking won't be adopted whole cloth immediately, but, uh, but I think it's a, better, it's a better set of challenges for courts to face than, than provided by the reasonable expectation of privacy test. Yes, down here. Hi, I'm Anna. Um, I work for AES Corporation in Arlington. Um, I could ask all of you questions, and it would be so much fun. But I'll, Mr. Elwood, I wanted to ask you, in talking about First Amendment issues when you're looking at obscenity and censorship on broadcast airwaves, I wonder if you have any thoughts at all about future cases that might come up in terms of what we've seen recently with this video on YouTube and the innocence of Muslims and whether we need to whether there's any move towards censoring things like that because they also do come into the home via computer or whatever and I have no idea if there's any development in that direction but I'd love to hear your thoughts. You know, I don't think they have, uh, I don't think that they have um, a hook. Um, like I wonder if they could try to fit that into profane uh, but I don't know that there's a statutory hook to get it in under existing law. Um, you know, the, uh, I, I think that it would probably take um, some form of action. Uh, I know that there have been um, things uh, that have been discussed on uh, the Volokh blog that I am a sometime contributor to uh, about various ways you can get into it. I think the one that is probably the most, or that, that you can get uh, such restrictions into domestic law. And I think probably the, um, you know, easiest way or the most likely way is through treaties. Uh, but <clears throat> even that, I mean, obviously there are, there are problems with treaties, ratification, uh, and things like that. Um, but I, I, you know, I don't know a, of a hook under current law for that to happen. Uh, but I think that the, uh, the uh, uh, likeliest scenario under which such a restriction might be adopted is through a treaty. And then, of course, you know, there's those two schools of thought about whether or not, um, you know, uh, uh, the treaty power allows you to, uh, you know, the amount of uh, external law that you can pull in through the treaty power, uh, which I, you know, I don't see that being settled in the next couple of years, although there have been some cases spinning around about that. So the, 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 um, the category that you try to uh, situate uh, the video by way of advancing the agenda to, to prohibit it would be hate speech. And that's the, tre the treaty under the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. There's a, a state obligation to prohibit hate speech. And the United States has acceded to that treaty, but we reserve from that article. And the, the key constitutional uh, law case there is Reed versus Covert, which held that the Bill of Rights cannot be compromised in any way through the exercise of the treaty power. Although some folks, myself included, um, make some arguments that interpretations of 
that the interpretation of the First Amendment could be um, adjusted uh, to meet um, uh, treaty obligations and, and international norms. The other interesting part of the Libya video story is the role of private actors and Google in particular. So if Google, Google is not subject to the First Amendment, and if Google decides that this violates its terms of service, then that's sort of even more effective than having the U.S. regulated. And in fact, Google did pull the video from some select Mideast um, uh, markets, notwithstanding the fact that Google itself found the video not to constitute hate speech. Peter, can I ask you a question? Um, you mentioned that Justice Kennedy left the door open for an as-applied challenge to the papers, please. And I think you said that there's litigation already underway. Can you tell us a little bit about the status of that? Uh, well, the opponents of the law uh, tried to block uh, Section 2B from going into effect in the district court. Um, Judge Bolton in the district court has now allowed it to go into effect. And the, the the opponents of the law will be looking for early test cases that will play on Fourth Amendment or equal protection or due process um, dimensions. And I think one thing's for sure, the state, uh, if the, the, the state's smart here, it's going to be very cautious in its implementation given that Justice Kennedy basically invited this, this kind of challenge. Okay, thank you. I'm afraid we've run out of time. Uh, following this panel, immediately we're going to take a 15-minute uh, break, so there's water over here in the Winter Garden. Would you please thank our panelists for an interesting discussion? Thank you.